Hey everyone, welcome to season two of the Legends of Retail podcast brought to you by Convictional. We talk to leaders in retail and e-commerce so you can learn from them about retail strategy, leadership, and team management and take their insights back to your company. I'm your host, Chris Grushy, co-founder and president of Convictional. What is Convictional? In short, retailers use Convictional to connect to vendors for dropship and curated marketplace. My guest today is a retail leader with over a decade of experience in the specialty pet category, Scott Arsenault. Scott is the CEO of Rens Pets, a Canadian specialty pet retailer with over 40 stores across the country and counting. Prior to his time at Rens, Scott co-founded Persuasive Marketing, where he partnered with companies such as Pita Pit to design and scale their marketing campaigns. In this conversation, Scott and I discuss a number of different leadership topics, including how to become an executive athlete, the power of executive coaching, why leaders need enough sleep to do their best work. We also discuss Ren's growth and, and their strategy under Scott's leadership. We discuss their strategy for how they open stores, how they tested and experimented with frozen food within their assortment, and how they remain focused on their core mission of providing their customers with their pet's best life. This was an absolute delight of a conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I think you will too. Here's my conversation with Scott Arsenault, CEO of Ren's Pets. Scott, welcome to Legends of Retail. Happy to be here talking about retail and everything we're doing at Ren's Pets. Awesome. Let's dive into it. I, I wanted to begin by sharing something you've mentioned in a past interview. Uh, and in the interview, you share that a CEO is an executive athlete. I think you were a former football captain in university and played hockey as well. Um, and I'm curious what lessons from sports you've been able to take and apply into running a business. Yeah, well, first off, um, I've always had a big saying and, and pre before we kind of get into the executive athlete, the key to success is preparation. And I found that in sports and early on in my career at university football, fear was a really good motivator. And we've probably all had that, whether we want to come on this podcast and be prepared and sound intelligent or, you know, we have an exam that we're preparing for a speech, maybe that we're giving um, a little bit of that nervous nature, you know, um, that fear can be a great motivator. I remember that. You know, going to university, being a first year person um, at a Division II school, going to play in Oregon and, and Washington and being out of a Canadian university, nervous about the competition we were going up against. So want to make sure we prepared. So we worked our butt off all summer training so that we physically weren't going to get manhandled on the field. So that's kind of that, you know, fear, but really just the key to success is preparation and kind of know what you want to do. Um, and where I went with the CEO and the kind of the executive athlete, I really had my um, eyes opened a few years back. I thought working harder, longer, you know, sitting at your desk, um, being on top of everything, coming in early um, and really driving the business, you know, very short lunches and little breaks, lots of coffee would be seen as admirable or maybe inspiring. And I, I learned it was probably the opposite. People were taking a lot of cues from you. And that you really couldn't be a complete leader without kind of looking at yourself in a different aspect. And that's where kind of some of these 
soft skills or important skills came in. It's your emotional, your spiritual, your mental, and your physical. So um, I, I knew I had to work on some things, active listening, maybe uh, the emotional intelligence as well, too. I was pretty passionate, but that can be a negative sometimes, you know, um, if you're a little too over the top. But what I didn't realize, and the executive coach challenged me, was to come back in two weeks and I had to do some physical fitness. And being a former athlete, um, I should have enjoyed that. I should have saw that as important, but I was like kind of this triangle of life, family, business, and health. It was really struggling with kind of that third dimension. So that got me onto the path and it didn't have to be a lot. It just had to be a conscious, intentional effort at something because what they were looking at there was you can't be show up every day as a great leader if you're not making sure that you're taking care of yourself like an athlete does. And whether it's eating right, sleeping right, you know, uh, reading, learning, growing. It was all these aspects that you really had to look at. And and it related to me, obviously, having played uh, university football, um, you know, you had to look at the total person. And, and that was kind of a stepping off point for me and my leadership. So much to pull out of that, including fear as energy, right? That reframe. Um preparation and this idea of creating leverage through things that aren't just purely work ethic plowing through any wall through brute force. Um, if we pivot slightly to retail where you are running an incredible company and have a, you know, way more expertise than, than I do on it. If you think about it, it's like we can create leverage through stores, right? Uh, and we don't have to be necessarily the best at everything. Uh, Rens has been absolutely crushing it lately in terms of opening stores. I believe the company is at 44 locations today, uh, aiming to be about 46 by the end of the year, if our research is correct. What's been your process for choosing a location to open up a retail store in? And what are sort of the different factors that you evaluate as part of uh, as, as as part of the decision to open a new location, so it'll be forty four this time next week. I think Friday will be forty four. So when we talked about it, uh, Truro's going to be opening up, and yes, forty six by the end of the year. So thank you for that. Um, I've been around since store number three, and um, we were Renz was kind of built on worth the drive. You know, off the beaten path, some big locations, bit of a category killer. Um, interesting stores to come at, but not necessarily um, on your way to everyday retail. And as we grew, um, we owned our locations and, and built our stores, but we knew we couldn't grow faster. And we wanted to do that through getting in more retail-like settings. Um, and the nice thing about that is you're getting instant traffic, but you have to be very scripted on that. And, you know, it was easy when we were three stores, picking out some winners, getting to 12 stores, maybe even 20 stores, because... You know, they're all going to be familiar spots. And I traveled with my children, whether it was for basketball, hockey or soccer. And on the weekends, I could drive different retail locations in London and Kitchener and, and you know, out to Kingston and, and Barrie. So while there might be an interruption in the game, um, I could see what was going on. But we knew that was not going to get us to the next level. We knew we needed to design something that would be um, agnostic to the human people that were running the company and we could have data that would make decisions, you know, 
not that we're currently looking to go to the USA, but if I was to just be dropped in Pittsburgh, I wouldn't know where the shopping nodes were. Uh, so we kind of use that framework that we're pretty comfortable around here because we know the settings and the landscape. But as we expand the company, we're going to get less familiar and we're going to have to deal with, you know, data. So we went through the process of looking at some really sophisticated, you know, retail um, softwares. And the one we picked was um, based on the fact that when we got to 30 stores, it would be very predictive. And what it would do was knock out some of our kind of um, older stores that were maybe over-indexing because of time and, 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 and familiarity and just look at regular retail. And then we could get very predictive on what sales and cannibalization would be. But what some of the main requirements um, in this software was that we got the demographics. So we got pet spend, we got competition, uh, we got education levels, household incomes, number of households, owner-occupied households. We got splits on things like um, your salaries versus average household costs. So really understanding discretionary income and what was driving it. So then it got nice to see that we could take these uh, polygons we could manipulate them by whatever the software was driving, or we could figure out, you know, barriers that might be highways or rivers or um, and, and north south of, of geographic territories, and really come up with the pet spend in that area, and if it was going to be enough to facilitate a rent. And once we saw that the demographics worked, whether it was pet spend and incomes and education levels that we liked, then we would go into what was a full core press on site selection. And that was, you know, that's your traditional, you're going to drive a site, you're going to look at it, you're going to look at ingress, egress, you're going to look at signage, co-tenancy, you know, size of the box. These are the things that really um, establish whether you're going to be an A site or a C site. So we can talk a lot about it today, but you can mix it up and I kind of look at, you can have A demographics and maybe a, a B minus site. You probably have a winner. You probably could have B demographics and an A site. Um, probably have a winner, but if you take C demographics and a C site, you're probably not going to like the result. And that's kind of the way we look at it from a day-to-day -day basis. What strikes me as being really critical to success in physical retail is access to proprietary data sources, uh, first and foremost. But then being able to have such a clear understanding of who your customer is and that provides a lens to then view and assess and make decisions based on the, the proprietary data. I mean, maybe the prerequisite here is know your customer, right? I'm not sure if you have any reactions to that, but that was striking to me. Yeah, and early on, you know, we would have thought the traditional soccer mom would have been our customer, but wow, has that ever changed, you know, with the boom of pet and really the, you know, the adoption of the pet as a family member. We've all heard about this, the humanization of the pet food and um, we saw it over the last 10 years with dog and we've seen it move into cat um, and just pets in general. So the customer has really changed. Obviously, millennials are a great advocate for owning pets. Um, and we still see that family member within that cohort of 35 to 55. But we see the baby boomers loving having their pets, you know, uh, recently purchased a Florida property and it will be a rental. And one of the requirements um, there was uh, the rental company that would lease it out for us said, if you don't allow pets, we won't take you because that is how critical it is. And most of the people that would be looking to go to the Florida would be 55 plus, but they're taking their family member with them. They're not leaving them at home. So that is a stipulation, whereas 
back in the day, and you might be a little young for this, Chris, having pets could have been a negative as a renter and people didn't want you. And now it's a requirement as a person renting. So it's totally. So there's a lens on not only who the customer was and who the customer is today, but it's how is this going to change in the future and assessing behavioral trends as it pertains to the bullseye demographic, as it were with those data sources. Um, and I remember in our first conversation, you mentioned to me, like, Chris, it's always omni-channel, right? Like omni-channel is everything. And so there's an element of online and retail and how those two things work together. Um, Rens recently has been awarded some incredible recognition for its efforts, including uh, both the Retail Council of Canada and Pet Product News for uh, its, you know, the company's omni-channel strategy. So congratulations once again on, again, the, the trailblazing. Um, what has informed the omni-channel strategy? And could you walk us through the journey of standing up omni-channel for rents? So going back in time, we've, all, we've sold online for over 20 years. So we're a bit of a leader there. And it was born out of the fact that we sell directly to groomers. And we have high-end grooming products, whether it's shampoos, clippers, and tables and tubs and we had a catalog business that morphed into an e-commerce business that you know store number one and two they were picking out of an old warehouse and doing some really um, early e-commerce and we've done like three platforms and so that necessity was created out around us being the number one supplier of those across canada and so getting away from the phones and getting a digital you know asset there so it was really interesting but back in around 2016 when we were like 10 stores um, we were purchased by a private equity firm out of the U.S., Porchlight, and they were fantastic. And, and one of the words they said they wanted to professionalize us, and I will preface that now with saying we're back Canadian-owned out of Quebec by the Legault family, the Mondeau, they're fantastic. But it was nice to have an American insight because when they came up here in 2016, they were like, hey, guys, we've read the book and we know the ending. You're about five years behind us, but it's coming. So we had something called Project 2020. And I will have to say at the time, I might have been a leader that was like, really, our stores are doing great. We need to invest this time and energy and really have these breakout teams and inquire. But really pushed on and said, you have to get ready. This is coming. And we were we were obviously selling online and we were um, in that business. But I don't think we were that excited or that visionary. So I have to say that having some American influence helped there because it's kind of like I think in fashion where it's in Europe first and it makes its way across the water. So they were living kind of real time what was happening there. And, and we were obviously with shipping and logistics and uh, costs just to operate e-commerce in Canada. We were obviously delayed um, and we just didn't have the density of people. But knowing that eventually we're going to break those barriers and it's going to come here. So what we did was we put this vision in for 2020. And I got to say, we were first in BOPIS, so it was click and collect, and we got it to BOPIS, and, you know, um, we did order by two, ship same day. And so these were a lot of things that in March, I guess, we're looking back, what was it, 2021 for COVID, that we were so happy that we had BOPIS when the government was forcing us to close our doors and only go to click and collect, and many of our competitors had a phone-in system only. So it was really nice that we were able to, even in such dire straits, um, be able to operate. operate. Um, what was challenging was to shift all of your customers online at once and everybody was dealing with that. So you, nobody could have 
um, done any stress tests on your systems to figure out what that would be like. And there was no modeling that we had that would even come close to it. So that's where kind of omni-channel bore out of our, our, our need to service groomers across Canada. We expanded to, you know, dog and cat and, and we wanted to make sure that um, we had products in our distribution center that mirrored us uh, having the ability to order by two, ship same day. So we brought all the dog and cat, you know, products that we needed to do that. And then we're going to be online that we, they would be in there. And we move forward quickly as creating a platform that can kind of service the stores. And the last piece of that and some of the recognition that we got recently that you're just talking about is we put DoorDash in. So one of our fastest growing categories is uh, frozen food, dog food. It's, it's uh, raw, you know, uh, but there's many different kind of genres within uh, raw. So we like to call it frozen. And uh, DoorDash services that mean, you know, it's the fastest growing category for food. Food's the biggest category within our business and people want to ship them the same day. We've got to see how we can do that in a frozen category is much different than shipping dry kibble that can take time in a truck or um, wh whatever logistics way it was. So DoorDash was kind of that cherry on, on top that really allowed us to, you know, 360 that customer, whether it was same day delivery, e-commerce, same day from the store shipping. It, uh, it makes me want to ask about merchandising and, and skip ahead to that, but I actually want to perhaps double click on, um, you know, what it was like to go through a couple of these acquisition journeys and we can start with, uh, uh Lego. So I'm um, getting acquired by Lego group and would love to hear what that process, what, what's been like for you post acquisition for starters, and then getting into, um, learnings. Uh, for adapting to, you know, the the acquisition, having done it now a couple of times, first via uh, Porchlight and second through Lego. So I'll let you take that in however uh, way you want. But I'm curious, as I know a lot of our audience um, has, you know, discussed opportunities with private equity or perhaps other investors, and they want to understand what's awaiting for them, you know, once they go through that that process. Yeah, I'll go, I'll go back to when uh, it was originally sold to private equity. Uh, being Canadian, I think a lot of people might not be familiar with this process of private equity. I think it thrives within the U.S. and people understand, you know, shares and valuations and EBITDA. We were running it like a business profit and loss at that point. Very happy for the owners that executed and worked in this a long time um, and set us up with a private equity that was kind of a mid, mid-tier private equity and some of the things that they said is they'll professionalize us and they, they did exactly that, whether it was in hiring practices, financial practices, um, best practices like e-commerce or omni-channel. They really gave us a lens and surrounded us with some people on the board that had been there, done that. Our team, I'd like to say, was young, um, had done a lot, but we weren't done. So we got to um, draw on that experience and really grow up um, with some rigor that maybe we didn't have previously. Um, quarterly board meetings, you know, year-end reports and stuff like that. Everybody might frown on them, but when you're do ever done a quarterly board meeting, they're a lot of work. But in the end of the day, you see what you've done, worked on the last quarter, your results. You get some clarity on what's important. You align and you move forward. And um, we've always had quarterly meetings and reviews at RENS uh, from three stores. So that wasn't something we weren't familiar with. But I would just say it was a little bit more um, documented, a little more rigid in terms of how it was going to happen and be structured. So, um, but it can be scary. 
I will say we were fortunate. Our private equity lived up to every promise they made to the leadership team. Um, and getting through any transaction and during COVID, I wouldn't wish that on anybody because my team was challenged with managing management presentations, which is an order amount of time that's given to, you know, uh, preparing and then giving presentations to maybe suitors or buyers at this point. Um, and it's a big list. Obviously with PET, there was a lot of excitement around it, a lot of big players that you would know were interested. So we had to carve out a lot of our leadership time to do the prep, the presentations, but still lead the company and make sure those numbers were going to be something that somebody would be attracted to. Um, and at the end of the day, the Legault family has 80 stores within Quebec and they are, um, they are have 98% brand recognition, but they're more than just a pet store family. They have real estate, they have manufacturing, they have development. So they've really built up their name and their brand and, and they just understood that maybe they'd be challenged as maybe St. Aubert or Swiss LA was, you know, making that step um, east or west. So they looked for acquisition outside of the province because they had an appetite for it. They just knew they wanted to make sure they had a banner that would give them the same success they had. And um, when they came up around 30, store number 36, and we opened up our first urban store, we cut the ribbon with them. One of the founders, Philippe, said to me, he said, Scott, we didn't buy the company, we bought the people. And you never know what that means. You know, that was early on. That was in month one. But now I'm, I'm, I've, we've lapped a year. We've retained our whole leadership team. They're pretty, uh, um, invested in trust and loyalty. They want to grow fast. They understand we need the people. We need to retain the people. Uh, and they understand the Canadian landscape. Um, the nice thing is they left us autonomous. Um, we've leveraged, you know, a lot of things that they do well, but at the same time, we, they want to keep our uniqueness and, if I was to say one thing, I've seen a lot of acquisitions within the pet industry in terms of brands. And as soon as the mother company or parent company seems to shed a little bit too much direction, the, the one that was growing or winning so much can lose its DNA really quickly and, and what made it special and unique. And, and we've been given the mandate to grow faster and quicker and, and, and keep that autonomy where it makes sense and leverage anything they can offer us um, and take off of our plate. Um, where it makes sense. So uh, A plus so far, um, and they are as advertised, which I think we're fortunate um, because you never know. And the more we get to know them, the more we like them. We bought the people. That's a powerful reminder of what drives business success. And yes, the process of getting acquired sounds like it can be distracting. And so you can't neglect leading the company. So if we think about we bought the people and segue into people, uh, many of the leaders I speak with on this podcast have told me about the value of executive coaching. I'm curious about that, what that journey has been like for you and if you would recommend it to other leaders. Yeah, well, if you ask my wife, I'm, I'm a fraction of who I was. Um, really, um, I was exposed to someone fifth element plug for Ruth Gatney, who I think is just exceptional and she's really helped my leadership team. We've all been through a program, you know, if you've never done a 360 review, it's pretty daunting and scary. Um, the feedback can be really, it hurts, you know, I, I gotta say, and everybody says you, once you get through kind of the first hour or two of some of the feedback, you can move forward. And I've seen every one of my team almost have that same example where you kind of like take it back at first. You didn't see maybe some of your blind spots. 
and then you're just a better person for it if you really are in a growth mindset. Um, I'm a big believer that leadership is learned. Just finished a couple books, Psychological Safety, The Multiplier. And every time I do, I, I wish I read it earlier. You know, and this is what I'm telling people. And these books can be 10 years old and they stand the test of time. We talked about um, some of our favorites too. Jim Collins, Good to Great. That was really important uh, when I saw the vision of Renz and where we were on the flywheel. So um, we're probably at the spinning really fast with technology at the end now. Um, and it's nice to see the people, the hedgehog, all that stuff come together. So I think anybody that doesn't think they can keep learning, whether it's a, a coach, a mentor, um, somebody that could show you a different way. You know, I golf. Um, some people may play other sports and it's amazing when somebody just shows you something like a grip, how different the experience can be with your success. And it's just a little thing. Um, so I, you continually got to challenge yourself and read. Um, and I think that's what needed in this environment when COVID really stressed leaders to show up and have emotional intelligence and um, banging fists is just not going to work. I don't think it worked. You know, that's a carrot and a stick before. Um, it, it works for a short period of time. And I've looked at, you know, companies where you almost know their leader list. And you look back to some companies where the leader was so vocal and so central to it when they left the company was not set up for success. You almost want to be, you know, uh, to the point where you're not needed anymore, right? If you're doing your job. So as a parent, a leader, a coach, you want to get to that. So yeah, big A plus for executive coaching for sure for me. It has been one of the common threads between uh, guests on Legends of Retail. Um, and I think the broader theme is leadership is learned. Uh, you have to be open to new ideas, new uh, sources of knowledge, and can't rest on your laurels. Um, which brings us to this idea of the flywheel in uh, Jim Collins' uh, Good to Great um, and, and being open to new ideas in particular around, uh, let's just take a merchandising example around uh, pet food. And we did some research on this. I think in 2020, PetFoodIndustry.com reported on the growth of unconventional pet food formats like raw, frozen, and freeze-dried pet food and the decline of traditional pet food. Sounds like DoorDash has been an opportunity to tap into to capitalize on the growth. Uh, I'm curious whether you're seeing this, to be, this trend to be true at Rents. Uh, and how important are these up and coming uh, food formats or merchandising opportunities import, uh, how important they are to your assortment? Yeah, critical. And, and when you're getting into something like frozen, I'll go back in time a little bit, but I will say that you test first. So, you know, we, I can remember sitting down with some of the leaders in this frozen category and saying, what if we could get to this amount or what would it be like? And what I did was ask a few personal friends that I, I really respected in the dog community that were breeders and, and show dogs. And I knew they had fed frozen. So, you know, I tapped into kind of their knowledge, took some quick direction from them, met with a few people and said, what would it look like for rents? But, you know, early on when we were three stores, I thought people would only buy big bags of dog food because why wouldn't you only fill your car up? Why would you put $20 in? So why would you buy a medium bag or a small, even if you had a small dog? Well, I was wrong. I thought people only bought big tubs of greenies. That's a, a dental treat that's pretty popular in the market. Um, and so when we brought in, went from 27 ounce greenies to 12 ounce, I was like, why would anybody buy those? They flew off the shelf. And then they brought six ounce and they brought three ounce. And 
And I was like, really? Like, I just, why wouldn't you just, you know, buy the biggest, but you don't know what the consumer wants or how they're going to feel. So you test it and, and you change your assortment based on that. And it's gone as far as like cat grass. I might've said, geez, I don't think this is going to sell on cat grass. And to have an assortment for the consumer that they want, you've got to continually be there. And getting back to the raw insights, freeze dried came early, maybe like eight, nine years ago. And it was expensive and the consumer did not adopt to it. And the first couple of people were pioneers, they failed, you know, but we saw that there was something there that was going to, you know, percolate over time. And when people wanted to start feeding better and really looking at ingredient panels, reading online, it started to make a comeback. And then, and then raw became this category that frozen that, you know, people thought was really going to be something that they felt they could feed their dog best. And it does not work for every pet. That's where you have to have an assortment. There's multiple dogs in houses that might be on a frozen diet and on a kibble diet, but limited ingredient, you know, um, a grain free. There's, there's multiple solutions for every pet based on age and size and activity. So there's no silver bullet or solution, but we adopted raw early on in the frozen category and we put in walk-in freezers. So it's door number 16, we put in walk-in freezers and we put five doors in and we thought, wow, we've got a walk-in freezer with five doors instead of your traditional double door freezers. And there was just so much more cube. There was so much more ability to store. Um, we quickly saw that five doors wasn't enough. We went to eight. We saw eight wasn't enough. We went to 12 and now we're at 16 minimum. And I think our Oakville store has over 20 um, plus some, you know, small freezers for fun things like bones and ice cream and, you know, the chest freezers. So there's even support products that are not in the necessarily the food category. That would be more in the treat category in the frozen. So we've really seen it grow. My message there would be like anything, you don't, you know, bet the farm on it. You don't bet the company on it. We tested it. We built a business plan. We did a couple walk-ins. We checked the lift, you know. And we do that traditionally with any category. And um, you got to have some strength within assortment for consumers to adopt. We didn't want one freeze-dried brand. We wanted multiple that's so the consumer could see that there was a section. And I think that's where brands really have to understand that there's power in numbers. You can't just have a single solution because consumers don't want to shop that way. You see it in chips and whatever, you know, candies and chocolate bars. Uh, there has to be a multitude and there has to be a section there as opposed to just a, a single winner. Um, so in both categories, we made sure that we were adopting kind of a, a, a really best in class assortment so that the consumer would look at us as, you know, a category killer, but maybe a category winner. And they could come and shop with us and have a lot of comfort in that we would have the brands that they wanted. I, I'm uh picturing an alternative parallel universe where uh Renz just sells big bags of dog food and how different the trajectory <laughs> would have been and it gets back to this idea of leaders need to be open to learning and at least at a merchandising level um testing and learning to prove or disprove your assumptions on what the customer wants is so key i think you hit on that yeah, and then now having, you know, getting up to 44 stores, we have the ability to even test in markets. And we've done some of that as well. When we rolled out DoorDash, I think we did 12 stores, um, tested it. I think we knew the answer, but we wanted to stick with that test and learn format. Sometimes there's a full launch, but we've definitely tested uh, new treat lines, new dog food lines. 
Um, that's consistent. You can take a six to 10 source sampling, um, get some early indications, um, how the consumers can adopt it. With brands that we are comfortable with and we're all in it with, uh, we traditionally try to be a really good partner. So if they see value in bringing something new to the market, we're going to support them. Um, we usually have a conversation. If it doesn't work, so on the way in, we're eyes wide open. So that's, we built up some trust both ways there that um, we're willing to experiment with them in a kind of a full launch, but they're willing to support us if uh, their hunch didn't work. So um, that's one of the nice things about Renz is corporately owned. Um, and I have a saying, the bigger you get, the smaller you act. It's not my saying, but the, you know, I just was in Montreal for some three-year planning and we talked to, I wrote on the board, act as if, and our manager should act as if it's Chris's Renz patent liberty. And I think that's the way you win locally, but we can give them the support at a corporate level and make sure, you know, we have best buying practices. We're getting good volumes, getting great pricing. So the consumer is getting the best. But then when you walk into Renz, we want it to feel like Chris's Renz pets or Scott's Renz pets so that it's unique and different. feels like we're involved in the community, whether it's local rescues and humane societies. So having a high level ability to pick the assortment and get, you know, consistency across the brand is great. And having the ability to have our people deliver an experience that might be unique to that community, I think, is kind of the winning solution. Right. Local uh, cater to the local needs of, of the customer with the benefit of sort of centralized merchandising and um, resources. Uh, I think that's really a really powerful combination, especially if you're able to whether it's use data sources or survey customers or just listen to them right at a store level, like what do they want? And then how can we use the qualitative uh, perspectives of our customers to drive assortment decisions um, and then test and learn um, as you did with, uh, you know, the, the, the frozen category. Yeah. And some of the data we get outside of even assortment from the community, um, our stores have to have at least two events every quarter, whether it's a rescue in humane society, something local. Um, they, we get an NPS score weekly on every location with comments. So we can see at first we did NPS company wide and we're like, Oh, we're 70. That's great. That's Starbucks like, but it's such a general number and it's, you know, got 30 stores in it. So then we broke it out and those questions are specific to our rewards members that have shopped with us. And it's just that one question and rate is one to 10, you know, so it's a pretty hard number to get. But we also track every night how many carryouts each store does to the car. And so some of these things have been mired with COVID, but we wanted to make sure that, you know, those are the things that I think if I own my own location, I would want to carry your dog food or your, you know, partners or wife's or friend's dog food out to the car and have a conversation with you about your pet. That's what owner operators do. So we track that on a daily basis, how many carryouts we do to the car. And that's been something that, um, is specific to, I think, our brain and what makes us successful at that kind of grassroots level within the community. So I think you're right, making sure we have tailored assortments and we don't get too corporate. That's always a struggle with a company as they grow. Um, but listening to the responses that we get um, at the store level really helps us um, keep kind of our ear to the ground, I guess. It requires a lot of experimentation too. And we talked about this, but one of the downsides of experimentation is you just take on too much uh, or your happy ears all the time. And then your surface area just <laughs> gets untenable. Um, 
and so you just dilute your focus ultimately. Um, can you share if that's been the case at Rens um, with any examples that may come to mind? Yeah, you know, even yourself, like this podcast, that could have gave you a quick no. You know, I'd love to do some of this stuff, but at time there's there's a bit of a time suck for everything you do, right? Whether we've spent an hour prepping and today some emails back and forth with my EA. So you multiply that over five a month and you've given up, a, you know, a quarter of your day planner. So, and, and it can be really things that you don't think are leaking. So from, from my level, I've got better at saying no quickly. Sometimes, you know, the understanding isn't there on the other side because, you know, but the end game is probably not going to move forward with this. So I need to say no quickly because as soon as I bring four of my people into it at an hour a person, they're already challenged and they're, you know, running at optimal. This is just kind of, you know, too much. So I'm trying to model that to make sure that people understand that, you know, we have our clear uh, epics or rocks that we're working on. And outside of that, um, the noise has to be really low and something has to be really exciting for us to take it on. So, you know, we had some talk around, you know, even uh, in Canada, we have our, um, uh, along the 401, we have all these great places, the on routes that you can stop. And would we put vending machines in there with pet products and we have an opportunity. And, you know, I just, the end game was, I just saw a lot of work um, and a distraction from, you know, our mission of a pet's best life and us delivering that through an Omni channel. And it didn't fit. Well, the, it was exciting. thought it would create a lot of brand awareness and some people really wanted to get behind it, but you had to kibosh it really quickly having crystal ball that from previous experiences of things that have been similar to this. So while it probably could have been a really good idea, it was just one of many and it just can't make the, what do they say? The cut for the reel and the movies and stuff like that. It just laid on the floor. So you have to cut quickly on some of those and that comes over time with experience and some failures. So I, I think it's easier for me 11 years to say uh, what's a winner and a loser. Um, so we can make those decisions and prioritize really quickly and make sure everybody has clarity. My leadership team meets every Monday morning. We have a quick, what went wrong, you know, for 45 minutes, each department kind of, um, goes over what quickly went there. And then we meet with the team to see how we did last week. So we keep a pulse really quickly on what the stores and our online presence is. Um, we look at the net promoter scores and get those answers. And, and like I said, something has to be pretty unique to make it into our day-to-day -day for us to move forward or consider it. Yeah, it's a balancing act. I mean, if you don't experiment, right, or take on unique opportunities, you know, you might be, uh, it might be difficult to really inf inflect growth. On the other hand, uh, if you take on too many opportunities, you pull in lots of people, they can never really get anything done because they're multitasking and focusing on too much. So it is striking the right balance. And I agree, finding truly unique opportunities that embed into the strategy is probably the right way to think about it with, you know, constant testing and learning, uh, back to the, the merchandising, um, examples. I, and, and also very interesting that you have a, what went wrong section during your leadership meeting. Curious to hear more about that. If, uh, if you're open to it. Yeah, that was born out of, uh, Rudy Giuliani's Monday morning meetings. And I know Rudy's fallen into not favor now, but I kind of, uh, watched him as a leader and did take some things in my early days from him. And he had a Monday morning meeting and I toured New York city with my dad. And I remember thinking 
growing up how bad New York City was and, you know, you hear all this crime and stuff. But I think we all could give Rudy some credit. His time in, in, in leadership in New York City just transformed it to a great place to go for entertainment and tourism, just thrive and, and you felt safe. And it felt like, you know, knowing Toronto that there was just a hundred young streets. We have one young street in Toronto, but you just could walk endlessly and it felt safe. And, you know, police officer on every corner, um, no visibility in terms of graffiti and garbage. And it was these little things that he ran the business of New York really well. And what he did was had all of his leaders come in every Monday morning and, you know, report. Well, nobody wanted to say response time had to be three minutes for police and it's six minutes. Well, if I'm the police chief, I'm going back and saying to my team, hey, like, I don't want to go into this meeting. Everybody had a great week. Ambulances were on time. No complaints about garbage. You know, graffiti was all cleaned up. The roads were great. And I, I was, you know, the person leading our team that had the report we didn't do well. So it doesn't reflect well on our, ours. So it's great to bring your team in and get an impulse of kind of the what went wrong. I think Four Seasons uses that as well. It's kind of like, it's great to hear about, you know, what went right, but like, let's hear about what went wrong because those are kind of the gems. So it's, you know, and we give a really state of the union quick, we look how we did the week previous. So we start out on Monday morning getting a really good reset of like, how was the week? How was the weekend? You know, how do we do in all departments, all locations? Um, and then everybody reports if there's something problem, we roll it right into a company-wide huddle at 10 o'clock. And I feel like we're reset. Some companies like to do that on Tuesday after they've got all the data. I used to do it at eight in the morning Again, growth mindset, I, I, I probably was intentionally forcing my teams to be prepared at eight o'clock in the morning on a Monday morning. So probably meant some Sunday morning work. So we don't want that. We want people to come in, be fresh, have a quick look at their numbers, get on any problems that they heard from Friday or previously, um, discuss it in the larger format, um, and then go for the week from there. So that's where that came out of. And I, I think making sure you have a pulse on the business and what we do have before those meetings is reports generated um, automatically on NPS, on sales, on the metrics like the carryouts, the comments that we care about. So we have a real quick glimpse at those. You know, if I look at NPS and it's over 70, I'm happy. If it's under, I'm going to delve into the comments, you know, really quickly and see where it was. Um, what was nice when you're getting comments is most of them were born out of lack of staff and inventory and pricing going up. And a lot of that was out of our control. So at least we were like, okay, I see why they're giving us a bad mark here, but the reality is uh, four of our people have COVID and we only had two people on the floor. So, it, you know, our, 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 our supplier didn't ship us and we didn't have the assortment you wanted. You know, I think everybody quickly understood that, but in the first six months of COVID, they didn't. So they were just like, why are you out of stock? And then everybody was a little bit more accepting, but the reality is still, you know, I'm having experiences personally in retail that you feel for the people behind the counter. I rented a car in Montreal last week and there's one person and there's 10 people. And I bet you somebody called in sick because I know that happens within our locations and this person is struggling um, to keep up and people are getting frustrated. And it seems like that's just kind of the new day of retail. And, and as companies, we're challenged with making sure we can buffer that negative experience as, as well as we can. And flipping back to what went wrong. One of um, the guests on this podcast, um, we're lucky to have as an investor in Convictional, um, someone named Scott Belsky, who's the chief product officer of Adobe. Um, he talked about this idea of merchandising progress 
And as leaders, our job is to merchandise progress. And the way to do that is to balance hard truths and seek them out and balance those hard truths with real wins. And I think you, you absolutely nailed it with the what went wrong and actually embedding that into the fabric of the leadership team meeting. Um, I think I want to pivot now to uh, books. And we, we talked about it briefly at the beginning, but there's one in particular that we haven't discussed yet. And it's one that I know you're passionate about. Um, Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. Uh, tell us about your journey with sleep and why that book is so important to you. Yeah. You know what? We talked about that one. I'm glad you brought it up because uh, I'm struggling with it right now. And I, and people say I don't sleep well, and you, you really have to persevere and ask why, whether it's caffeine or you've got something on your mind and you're not preparing yourself and whether you need to shower before bed, relax, you need to have a cold atmosphere because it really is easy not to have a great sleep. Like there's so many things going on in our head. So we have to be very purposeful and intentional about trying to have it. Why it's so important. I read that book and um, it, as a parent, it changed my mindset on early morning practices and the need for sleep and the brain development, whether it's the fetus and, and they're in the womb to the time that they're young children um, and this teenager brain that you hear so much about um, just a couple of quick stats, some schools in the U.S. went to nine o'clock and even 10 o'clock starts and car accidents went down dramatically because teenagers were just asleep driving to high school. It was just a known fact if they're on the road at seven or eight, that they're just not awake. They didn't have enough sleep. And, and we've heard that about teenagers and how much they need to sleep. But for leadership, it's, it's paramount. And we talked about pillars, but that was the foundation is what me and you were talking about that you can't be a good leader without getting sleep. And it's not heroic and it's not admirable to like burn the midnight oil and get up. So, you know, I got home from Montreal at 11 and I really challenged myself to sleep till seven, like to make sure having wanted to get up um, and know that I was, you know, traveling and away on some meetings for a couple of days that I had probably a pretty big couple of days to catch up. Um, but you know that you can't do that without sleep. And what the lack of sleep really affects is your emotional intelligence. So, um, you know, I, the kids at my house have a saying called tent sale dad. Early on, we did uh, tent sales and I would work all weekend with my VP of retail. And, and we ran a lot of these up into the store number 30. So it was something that we did and it was unique to Renz and we ran many of them, but we still had our day to day job on Monday. So we were just physically and mentally exhausted and it couldn't be a good parent, couldn't be a good leader. So, you know, I choose sleep now. Uh, over getting work done because I know the work's going to suffer if you don't. Uh, it's really, really easy to think that you can go and just, you know, get that optimal amount of sleep, but then you got to consider diet, exercise, alcohol consumption, a lot of things. But um, I gave a speech recently for a conference of uh, a brand that we deal with. There's over 80 people there. And I talked about at the end, I wanted to give them some, you know, takeaways. And I said, leadership is learned, read, keep reading whether it's personal growth or professional growth at all is growth. Um, doesn't always have to be a business book for sure. And the other one was, you know, read this about sleep and get eight hours of sleep a night. And I had somebody come up to me at our most recent conference and she said, you know, I remember that talk you gave and, and, you know, I didn't know her cause there was many people in the room, but she's like, I'm reading again and I'm sleeping eight hours and I'm so much better for it. And if there was one takeaway from all of this, if anybody wanted to be a great leader, I'd say get 80 hours sleep, minimum seven. You're going to be so much better for your family, your friends, your company, 
Um, and then you can kind of be the leader you want to be from there. So have you read some of that? I know you followed Mr. Walker a little bit too. So um, is it podcast or you're aware of that, Chris? That I, you know, it's interesting. I, I started reading Why We Sleep and then I heard um, a couple of different podcast interviews that Ma- Matthew Walker um, had done. And I it, it prompted me to particularly reduce my caffeine consumption after 2 p.m., um, so I've got a coffee right here and it's delicious and I'm just a coffee snob and I'm like, I've got eight minutes to <laughs> consume this or else I'm going to be having a difficult time getting to sleep. Um, it's also uh, been a motivator to use analytics um, more seriously. And so I have a this product, you know, not affiliated with them in any way. Um, uh, it's called Eight Sleep and it's basically a cover that goes around my mattress um, and so my partner and I can each have our own different temperatures, but it's filled with uh, sensors to give you a perspective on what time you fell asleep, what was your sleeping heart rate, uh, how did it change over the course of the evening, was it higher or lower on average, and then I basically every morning wake up to a report on my on last night's sleep, and All then right. I know what kind of day it's going to be based on that. And so the best part about it, though, I think from my and then I'll. I'll uh, <laughs> hand it back is, um, just being able to regulate temperature. It's critical. Um, and I notice if I can't, you know, adjust the thermostat because I'm traveling and the hotel room uh, can't get cool enough that will impact my sleep. Um, in addition to alcohol and caffeine, uh, consumption and just really watching that. Yeah. And it's amazing that, you know, um, with the lack of sleep goes the cravings for eating. So, you know, it's all intertwined in health and fitness. So you'll see a tantamount difference between the amount of food you crave if you're getting good sleep versus little sleep, you know. So I think you nailed it on the head and alcohol as well and caffeine too. So I'm struggling right now. I'm just, I've been drinking a little more more coffee later and I know it's affecting my sleep and I'm pretty good at drinking coffee and sleeping. But if you want to be optimal, so I, I, I'm glad we kind of bear the same kind of beliefs there, but more people need to understand this. They really, really do. There's a lot of zombies walking around out there. And I, yeah, I get it at times. You just get put in positions where it's just not going to be, um, you know, it's not going to happen, but you want to get back on that, you know, routine as quickly as you can. Right. So live life, enjoy yourself. But, you know, when you can, I think getting into a routine is much better. Absolutely. Everything in moderation, including moderation. Um, we are, we're coming up on the end of our time together, but I have a, one more question and then a couple of rapid fires for you. Right. Um, so we're, we're coming up to the end of 2022. Um, and I'm curious what Canadian pet owners can expect from Renz in 2023. Any initiatives, ideas that you can tease us with? Yeah, that's a great one. Um, you know what? Regular retail is kind of what we settled into in some regards, like in stocks been some things like, can we get back to some of that data that we enjoyed previously? The numbers that we accept now are numbers that we previously wouldn't have accepted. Standards again, staff training, people on the floor. So I wouldn't say it's new. It's kind of back to where we were. You know, when people are frustrated with lack of retail staff, it's usually not the company that's driving that. It's just the amount of access to people and then, you know, just still general sickness. So our goal was like, could we get back to the standards that we were comfortable pre pandemic with 
how our store looked in terms of operation and cleanliness, how our staff were trained and feeling, how many people we did have there to service customers and what the product and assortment was like for an in-stock. So I, I wouldn't say that there's uh, something, you know, we're not building some space shuttle that's going to take us to Mars by any means at Rens here. Um, continuing to be a leader and, and tweak and be better at it. But there's some of the regular retail that we're ambitious to get back to that I think consumers would enjoy. And we're trying to figure out a way to get more people in the stores, to get more product on the shelves, to get those standards back to where the consumer would be happy with it. So that's kind of our big focus right now. Dogs are not going to the moon. <laughs> so that's <laughs> st sticking to the basics and really nailing them. I think that's, um, that's a testament to the focus you've driven into your team. I want to move into our rapid fire round. We've got four quick questions. I'll give you a brief question and then you'll give me your immediate thoughts. How does that sound? Oh, wow. Scary. <laughs> Is that one? All right. Is that one? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I guess, I guess we're going five. Um, most exciting opportunity in retail and e-commerce. Tackle the shipping barrier cost, I guess. It's not one word. Are you looking for one word or one thought? Nope. Uh, you can, you can riff on it if you want. Yeah. Cool. Uh, a brand, a brand you love and why? Jeez. Wow. You're really killing me on this one. Um, the keg as okay. advertised, you know, they're going to have to get back to pre COVID standards, but I felt like the TV commercials and it wasn't like it was my best experience eating, but it was as advertised. So I felt like the keg lived up to their promise and that's important. You know, you can be um, a Dollarama, you can be some type of other concept as long as you knew who you are and you're delivering that concept. I think that's what the consumer wants. So I always felt the keg was bang on with what they promised and what they delivered. And their twice baked potato is just like, <laughs> yeah, probably not sleeping too well after that and a couple bottles of wine. Most important lesson as a parent? Uh, I guess, I guess again, is to keep in a growth mindset. You know, um, the things that you probably historically were taught or grew up on might not be the best. So as a parent, you got to be in a growth mindset, read a little bit, learn a little bit. And then you talked about moderation. I think you can get a little bit too right wing or left wing as a parent. Sometimes you'll see that, but I, I think, in any kind, like parenting is, is almost like a job as well. And, and there is things you can learn to help you sleep what we want, diet. These are things that would help your children immensely. Um, so I think stay in a growth mindset. We definitely, as our children grew up and even now, we were always trying to make sure that we were current, my wife and myself. That's wonderful. Uh, and lastly, the kindest thing someone has done for you. Jeez, Chris, you're killing me on this. Um, <laughs> hmm. I, I guess, you know, and this can sound a little bit, you know, prescribed, but I guess the kindest thing, it's kind of like that, you know, you got that something in your teeth and somebody can tell you a little bit of area for improvement. You're not going to like it at the time. Um, and getting back to the growth leadership, it's really affected my personal and professional behavior. So, um, 
definitely a different person. I thought hard work and up early to rise and all those things would be things that would make you a great parent or a great leader. But some of the hard conversations, I guess, would be maybe the, the best things or gifts that people have given me. And, and they're not always uh, seen that way at the time, but probably now looking back, it's, it's made me a better person. So, yeah. That's, uh, that's great. This has uh, been an incredible conversation, Scott. Thank you so much. Um, a true masterclass in what it means to be a retail leader, uh, how to balance uh, focus with test and learn um, and sleep and all of the great leadership lessons within it. So um, I really appreciate the time you've taken out of your day to have this conversation and hope to do it again sometime. Yeah, I highly recommend it, Chris, your guys' uh, preparation, your team, overall professionalism. That's one of the reasons that I got a little more excited after our first meeting um, and knew this was going to be something that would kind of inspire and motivate me as well. So I got some good takeaways from this as well, and your preparation was uh, really appreciated. This was fun. Awesome. Really appreciate that, Scott. Take care. Okay. See you, Chris. Thanks again to Scott for coming on the show and thank you for listening. To catch the latest episodes of Legends of Retail, please subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also stay updated by following Convictional on LinkedIn and Twitter. Finally, if you want to share feedback on the show, I'd greatly appreciate it. You can DM me on Twitter at Chris Grushy, or you can email me at chris at convictional.com. That's chris at convictional.com. Thanks again for listening.